Good morning. I uh, I had a moment this morning, um, and I want to I want to tell you about it before I start preaching at you. Okay, um, we were singing "Jesus Is Lord," which is uh, a song that I've sung for a long time, and it is truth. That's right. Um, but I I'm I was remembering. Uh, Bert and Judith Ellis that used to worship with us. Y'all remember Bert and Judith? Um, I, Tri-County was Bert and Judith's first experience with um, acapella worship. Uh, everywhere they'd worshiped before had instruments. And, and if you remember, uh, Bert was here about six months before Judith ever moved to Oklahoma. And they've moved back to Texas now. But uh, um, I remember the first Sunday Judith was with us, we sang that song, Jesus is Lord. And after worship, uh, Bert told me that uh, when he saw the song pop up on the, the screen behind me here, he leaned over to his wife and he said, now listen, because the angels are about to come in on that echo. And uh, that's just, a, a, it was a, a beautiful idea for me when he told me that story and I thought about it this morning. Uh, it's uh, The moment I had was related to that. Um, we've got some friends in this weekend. Joey and Amber Campos um, are here from Altus and Lindsay and Anthony are here and I was remembering the uh, the days gone by um, watching those kids grow up um, down there in Altus when I was a youth minister. But uh, one of the things we, we did this weekend, I guess every time we get together, we start telling stories and uh, started telling stories about Joey's dad, Joe or Jose, um, who's gone to be with the Lord now. Um, how many years ago, Joey? In 03. So is it good night in 13 years? Um and Joey was asking me about some stories. Uh, we were talking about Joe's baptism uh, that Joey didn't know anything about. Joe had called me and wanted to keep it a secret and surprise Joey and his mom, Elva, uh, that night. It was a Wednesday night uh, that I baptized Joe. But uh, it just it, it hit me this weekend talking to Joey that um, what what he was after and, and what I was more than happy to provide were stories about the Father, Right? And isn't that what we're here to do this morning? Tell stories about the Father. Uh, how good is God to us? How much has He blessed us? How much does He love us? We serve a good God, do we not? Amen. I can't hear you, do we? Amen. We do. And we better not forget it. Amen. That's right. <laughs> Anybody seen this television show? Anybody ever ever seen this show? Intervention is what it's called. Uh, this is a, a television program about um, trying to help alcoholics and drug addicts find sobriety in recovery. And the way that it play, plays out is an intervention is staged where friends and family come together and they say something's got to change. Uh, we've got a treatment option for you. An individual either agrees to take advantage of the opportunity or doesn't. Most of the time in the, in the television program, um, the individual says okay, goes off to treatment, 
from there, um, you're kind of left to wonder a little bit how things play out. A lot of times at the end of the television show, they'll give you a blurb about so-and-so has been sober since this date or so-and-so relapsed not long after completing treatment. In a way, this television show sparked my interest, my passion for helping those enslaved by addiction. Uh, we'd only lived here in Cushing about six months when this show premiered, and some of you may remember uh, the struggles that the Tri-County Church family had with addiction during that time. Um, I had no idea how to help those people. No clue. We would uh, have instances where we'd have, I remember one specifically where there was a drug bust at some of our members' house. They'd been cooking meth, and they were taken to jail, and I just felt helpless. I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to help. Um, buddy Rowe ordered me a book one time about addiction. Do you even remember that, Buddy? That's probably 10 years ago now. Uh, and I read the book and, and learned some things, but still didn't know how to help. And um, I went to Valley Hope. I used to walk from my house to my office over here in this in this building uh, a couple of days a week, and I'd walk right past Valley Hope. And um, you know, there were stories when I moved to town about how that house was haunted, and I can kind of see that now from some of our patients and some of the stories that come out of there. Uh, but after that drug bust, I, I was so frustrated. I didn't know what to do. I went to Valley Hope. I walked into the cafeteria and didn't know where to go. And somebody directed me towards a nurse's station. And they didn't, nobody knew what to do with me, you know. And, and so I walked up to the nurse's station and uh, a nurse walked to the counter and she said, yes. And I said, y'all got to help me. I need some help. And she said, sir, we'd love to help you. Just come lay down. We're going to take your vitals. It's going to be okay. And, and I said, no, no, no. I, what I mean is I want to be able to help other people, and I just don't know how. And so they didn't know what to do with me either. Um, they said, go sit on a, in on some of our lectures, and, and maybe you'll learn some things. And so I did. I'd, I'd go out. I was the guy in the corner of the lecture hall for I don't know how long at Valley Hope, just listening. And, and then one day at the Cherry and Steel building, a couple walked into worship, a uh, little guy that looked like Santa Claus. Uh, his name was Gary Hill. And I introduced myself. I said, Gary, what do you do? And he said, I work at Valley Hope. I said, Gary, you and I are about to become good friends. And for a solid year, I went out to Valley Hope every Wednesday for lunch. And Gary would, would buy my lunch, which I thought was great. Come to find out, he was only spending $2.50 on me. Um, and then we'd go back to his office. And for an hour, we'd talk about how to help those who were battling addiction. Um, that office is now my office where I meet with patients and lead them through the 12-step program. Um, but this television show, Intervention, really really kind of is what sparked things for me. So l let me ask you, what is an intervention? Do you know? You ever, if you've seen the show, you probably have an idea. But the idea of an intervention is to confront unacceptable behavior. An interventionist, a specialist, will lead a group of family and friends through the process. And uh, typically what happens is uh, every family member in the circle or, or friend within the circle will say, your drinking or your drug usage has affected me in the following ways. And that's pretty painful to hear. And then the circle will swing around again and every individual in the circle will say, from this point forward, 
here are the boundaries of our relationship. No longer can you sleep on my couch. No longer can you call me to bail you out of jail. I'm not paying your bills. Whatever that looks like, that's what an intervention is. It's a, it's a confrontation of unacceptable behavior. It's an opportunity for those that love the, the alcoholic or the drug addict to say, you can't keep doing what you've been doing. Okay? Oftentimes it's a surprise. If you've ever watched the show, a lot of times they'll rent a, like a hotel room. Uh, and, uh, an individual will knock on the door and the door will open and there's a camera and there's a circle of family and friends and the individual will go, whoop, no thanks, and walk right out of there, right? Because they know what's about to happen and they don't want any part of it. Sometimes it's a surprise. It's always an attempt to save a life. So here's what I've been thinking about this week. What would an intervention staged by God look like? We'll get there. I'm going to preach a little series here. We're going to kind of culminate with Jesus. But I like what he reminds of. Look at this verse from Isaiah 59. He, that's God, he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. God has a habit, doesn't he? Throughout history of intervening in the affairs of humanity. And so what I want to look at this morning are, are three examples from the Old Testament where the God of heaven intervenes in the life of humanity. I'm going to reference two of those and then we're going to settle down and read one of those together. Okay? Here's the first one I want you to be thinking about. The story of Jonah. You know the story, right? God says, by the way, this is a great picture. I don't know how well you can see that. That's Jonah. And this is an artist's rendition of the fish that swallowed him. Um, God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach to the capital city of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, Israel's arch nemesis. And Jonah says, you got it. And then does what? Goes the other way. Uh, goes to Tarshish instead. What happens to Jonah? Okay, before that. Before that. A huge storm descends on the ship. And every sailor there is thinking, what in the world have we done to offend the gods of heaven? They're trying to to row to shore that's not going to work. They know that they're about to drown. And so they, they come up with this idea. Somebody's fault. Somebody has offended God and they draw straws. You remember? Who's the straw fall to? Jonah. They say, Jonah, uh, what are we supposed to do with you? He says, throw me overboard. They don't want to do it. They, they, they know that they are essentially murdering the man if they throw him overboard. He says, that's the only way it's going to work. So they do. Storm stops. What happens to Jonah? Swallowed by a fish that deposits him where? On the shores leading to Nineveh. So we got Jonah. You see how God intervened in Jonah's life? Jonah was running away from God. God said, no, 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 no. It's not the way this is going to work. How about Job? 
You remember the story of Job? Here's a man who was blameless, righteous, more so than any man in his time. Satan wanted a piece of him. And God says, you can have him, just don't kill him. Right? And so, do you remember all that Satan did to him? Took everything from him materially, right? Uh, he was left with just a handful of servants, all who had come to tell him, your sheep are gone, your donkeys are gone, your wealth is gone. How about your children? They've all been killed. And then Satan afflicts him with boils, sores. You can kind of see that in the picture there. Job's own wife says, what are you doing hanging on to your dignity? Just curse God and die. And Job says, you're talking like a crazy woman. Are we to receive good from God and not bad? And then Job's three friends show up. And another one who's kind of an acquaintance. And these guys essentially say, Job, what did you do? Not Job, we're sorry. Not Job, we feel for you. Job, what did you do? They sit for him in silence for one week. That's the best thing they did for him. And then they start accusing him of all this wrongdoing. At the, near the end of the book, Job gets his temper up and he, he basically says, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. It's not my fault that these things are happening to me. And then he takes a step and crosses a boundary. And he says, essentially, I am every bit as righteous as the God of heaven. And then the God of heaven shows up. You remember? In a whirlwind, in a storm. And the question is posed, who is this that darkens my counsel without words of understanding? God intervenes into Jonah's life, into Job's life. And this morning we're going to see God intervene in the life of a man named Balaam. I ask you to get a Bible and turn to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. This is a, a lengthy reading, uh, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 35, and, and we'll go quickly. There's a story there. I, I, I don't think you'll get bored here. Numbers chapter 22. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who is at Pethor near the river in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt, they cover the face of the land, and have settled next to me. Now come put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed, and those you curse are cursed. Now let's get our major players in line here, right? We've got Israel settled next to Moab. King of Moab is who? Balak, right? 
he sends a message to a man named Balaam that says, I need you to come do what for me? Curse the Israelites. Because I know, Balak says, that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. Verse 7. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princes stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. Next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's princes, Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princes returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak sent other princes, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now stay here tonight as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Okay, let's pause right here for a second, make sure we understand what's happening. Right? Balak, king of Moab, sends one delegation to say, hey, we'll pay you something if you'll come curse these people. Balaam says, let me talk to God about it. He asks God, what does God say? You can't curse those folks because they're blessed. So Balaam goes back to the messengers that are sent to him and says, well, go back and tell Balak your king, sorry, God won't let me do what he wants me to do. They go back and tell Balak, what's Balak do? He sends another delegation that says, Hey, um, don't don't tell me no. Don't don't say no without hearing this through, because I'm prepared to give you a whole lot of money. Balaam, to his credit, says, "Hey, you can offer me your whole palace. I can't do anything that God doesn't give me permission to do." Goes back to God. God tells him what that time. You go with them, but you only do what I tell you to do. Okay. Verse 21. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. We'll talk about why in a second here. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against her, so he beat her again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat her with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You've made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? 
Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared her. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Okay, is, is this not a great story? <laughs> I love the Bible. I love stories like this. Three different times, the donkey spots the angel of the Lord sent to oppose Balaam, tries to get out of the angel's way, which winds up in, with Balaam doing what? Beating the donkey, right? Last time the donkey says, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to lay down. So the donkey lays down. Well, what's Balaam do? He gets his staff and starts beating the donkey. How's the donkey respond? Yeah. The donkey just starts talking, just strikes up a conversation. And what I love most about this story is that Balaam joins in. He's not like, whoa, my donkey's talking. He's actually listening to the reason the donkey is giving, right? Oh, you make a good point there, donkey. I see where you're going there. You know, the donkey says, have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No? Well, let me think about it. You know, this is a conversation that's happening. Then God opens Balaam's eyes, and what does Balaam see? The angel of the Lord sent to oppose him. I want you to see this in verse 32. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you, because your path is a reckless one before me. That's intervention, is it not? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. Now, it, it's not readily apparent in the text, but the reckless path that Balaam was on had to do with his betrayal of the nation of Israel for his own financial gain. Right? Let me show you what I believe happened here. Okay, From Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, they, the, these people that were separated from God, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord and what happened at Peor so that a plague struck the Lord's people. I say, okay, so from, from this verse, we see that Balaam advised someone to do something that ended up with Israel being plagued, right? Revelation 2, uh, Jesus' message to John about the church in Pergamum. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. So Balaam didn't curse Israel. What did he do instead? He betrayed them. He said to Balak, king of Moab, I can't curse him because God won't let me, but I'll tell you what I can do. I can tell you how, God, how you can get God to turn his back on this people by leading them into sin. Why did he do it? Second, Second Peter, rather, chapter 2, verse 15. They have left the straight way 
and have wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. In Jude, verse 11, Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Balaam may not have pronounced a, a curse upon the Israelites, but he did advise Balak, king of Moab, as to how they might be led into sin. Here's what struck me forcefully about this text. Even though God intervened in his path, Balaam still found a way to sin. Is that starting to sound familiar? You ever circumvented the will of God to get what you want? I do it all the time. I know what God wants. I know what God doesn't want. And still I fight, try to find a way around it. We know, even as we're doing it, there are consequences for our disobedience. But still, like Balaam, we beat the backs of those who want what's best for us in an attempt to get what we want for ourselves. Let's be real honest with ourselves for a minute here this morning. Is the path that you are on a reckless one before Almighty God? Has He come here this morning to oppose you? Is God intervening in your life right now as we speak? You know, I think sometimes we make deals with ourselves, or at least I do. I'll say, God, if, if, if you give me a sign, if you show me exactly what you want, then I'll stop doing that which I've been doing that I know I shouldn't be doing anyway. You ever done something like that? God, just, uh, just make it clear and I'll quit. Or God, give me that sign, and I'll start. I mean, we make deals like this all the time. If you're anything like me, there have been times that you've waited for a sign from God to tell you it's time to cut out that sinful behavior. And I want to say this morning, church, look at me and listen to me. I'm looking at you. If you've been waiting for a sign from God to tell you that it's time to change, then this is it. This morning, this sermon, it's a storm descended upon your ship. It's a voice speaking out of the whirlwind. It's an angel sent in opposition to the reckless path that you're on. It's a donkey speaking with the voice of a man rebuking your wrongdoing. We looked at this text just a second ago in Second Peter. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. Listen to verse 16. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. That's what I'm here to do this morning. 
Listen to me, because you don't want to miss this. If you think you can circumvent the will of God, if you think you can get around like Balaam did, what God wanted for him and from him, then you're nuts. You're crazy. It will not happen that way. I am here as a donkey speaking with the voice of a man to restrain that kind of madness this morning. What's another name for donkey? I don't want to come across that way this morning, but I'm willing to if it'll get you to change. God loves us enough not to care whether or not He hurts our feelings. You understand that? And I'm going to try to love you that much this morning. I don't care if this offends you. I don't, it's not my intent. My intent is that you repent. But I'm not going to get caught up in worrying about your feelings. Listen. If you're not living a life that brings glory to the God of heaven, if you're trying to circumvent His will, then there is a price to pay. And I want to intervene before you have to pay it. My message for you this morning is very simply this. We've taken a long time to get here, I know. But here's the point. Repent. I don't know that God will send a storm or speak out of a whirlwind or through the mouth of a donkey. But I do know that what He wants most is for our lives to align with the standard Jesus Christ that has been set for us. And if your life doesn't, there's hell to pay. So repent. Is that clear? Having said that, this is a family that knows full well we mess up and make mistakes, right? And so, even though I warn you with the Word of God this morning, I also tell you that I love you and that I believe in you and I think we can do better. If there's something in your life that needs to be repented of this morning, I don't think I have to tell you, you need to do that. But occasionally, what gets that ball rolling with repentance is confession.
And the Tri-County Church has a long history of being honest with ourselves and with one another about what's happening in our lives. And I want to tell you, because we haven't done this lately, should you choose to share with us something in your life that needs to change, then you need to understand what you're going to be met with is love and mercy and forgiveness and support and yes, even accountability. Because that's the only way life change can be sustained. You're not going to be judged. You're not going to be condemned. You're not going to be condescended to. You're not going to be looked down upon. It's not what we do here. How many of us are sinners? If I judge you, I'm judging me. Right? Is there anything that anybody wants to say in response to what the Word of God has said this morning? Okay. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me, and I'm going to pray. God, I know our numbers are down this morning. I know we're missing a lot of folks. I know we've got a smaller crowd than usual. But I also know, God, that with uh, a crowd even this size, there's some changes that need to be made. There's some repentance that needs to take place. God, I am grateful that you love us enough to intervene in our lives. This morning we talked about uh, Jonah and Job and Balaam and it's obvious that you stepped in attempting to save these men from themselves. And I believe with all that I've got this morning, God, that's what you're doing right now. If there's some... <clears throat> if one of my brothers or sisters in Christ is here and needs to make a change, please, God, let this be the sign. Let this be the change starting now, today. I love you, God. I, I believe you are full of mercy and forgiveness and loving kindness and compassion. That is, that's clear because of the cross. But God, I also know that you are just. And you are righteous. That too is clear because of the cross. And I ask this morning that we learn specifically from Balaam and quit trying to circumvent your will for our lives so we can get what we want. Keep loving us, God. 
Continue to be patient with us. We need you. Thank you for caring enough about us to intervene. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. David.